Hey friends, I have two quick announcements. I have an upcoming workshop, Identifying Your Own Call to Adventure. I'm gonna talk about the ways historically that uh, the call to adventure does show up for people and how it might be showing up in your life. And so if you have the sense that there is an adventure out there waiting for you, then this might be a way of adding a bit of clarity to that or reframing it and thinking about it differently. Now, in the last uh, podcast, I think it was, I talked about a three-part workshop series. What I decided to do is that I'm going to do one of these workshops live, which is the Call to Adventure workshop that I was talking about on August 21st, again at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. The the other two are going to be mailed out to recipients. Whoever registers for that workshop will get access to the other two, and they'll probably be in podcast form. So one we're going to do in person, and the other two I'll send out. Also, I did want to mention that my new book, Ambitious Heroes and Heartache, is out on Audible, the revised edition. For a while, people, there was only access to the first version on Audible, but now uh, they're both out. So if you're interested in getting deeper into these ideas and don't feel like reading but want to listen to me read it to you, that's available. I'll link both of those up in the show notes of this episode. Today, we're going to talk about the Buddha myth. We're going to talk about finding ourselves within the Buddha myth, what it can tell us about our own journeys. Without further ado, on to the show. that I'm not super interested in the does God exist argument. Part of that is because, as I've said so, so much on the show already, that whenever you talk about God, I don't necessarily know what aspect it is that you're referring to or what you're seeing. Something I used to hear in church all the time in, in the religious context that I grew up in is that you have to believe either all of it or none of it. And that is such a misinformed statement that it's actually pretty difficult to even know what it means because you can imagine that with every single verse that you read and I I have a contemplative practice where I will spend um, hours and hours on a verse and as I sit with it as I sit in the silence you know I've heard before the secrets of the universe are whispered to us in silence and as I sit with certain scripture scripture or other texts from wisdom traditions what I find is that the insight the way in which I understand it gets deeper and deeper as the hours go on and what's interesting is when you think about somebody who would be saying you have to believe all of it or none of it it's like well what at what level are you understanding every single text? Because every every single text has a world of their own hidden within it, hidden within the depth of the text that you don't necessarily get on a cursory reading. And any good text is this way, right? You read it, and as you your consciousness expands, if you read the same book, actually, Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell is one of those books. I found it at three different times in my life, and it's radically changed my life all three times and all three times the level at which I was reading it the the depth at which I was understanding it was actually was actually deepened 
as the years went by. And so to say something like that is just to fundamentally misunderstand the way human perception works. And that's the same thing with saying that you believe in God or don't believe in God, right? Because the phenomena behind it is infinite. Quite literally, that's what we profess when we use the word, especially in a monotheistic sense, right? We're looking for a unifying theory, which not only explains the path that we're on, the meaning of life, but also the source of that life to begin with. Something that Plato uh, talked about is that when you start to see reality in an illuminated way, you get really interested in what that light is. And if you follow it long enough, if you go on that adventure long enough, you eventually find that the light which is illuminating, giving insight to you is the source of you as well. And that's what we tend to profess when we use the word God. But as I've said, there's so many different ways of understanding what the hell that is. And if we're talking about the phenomena behind God, well, it's actually much more important that we that we wrestle with that on an individual level. Because as I said, and this gets into the point for today's show, the way in which we've read history has only really changed in the last couple hundred years. This idea that things are factual, and if they're factual, they happened, is a very interesting way to understand what's real. I'm thinking of a of a rites of passage I read about in Africa, and I wish I could remember the tribe right now. But in any case, they brought the children out there and they, you know, of course, put them through this ex- liminal experience, right? Quite, quite literally have them hanging between life and death. And they tell them these stories about their origin, kind of like our Adam and Eve story in the West. So they would tell them that story. And as they would tell them, they would tell them that the original Adam creature, again, I cannot remember the name here, but they would tell them that he was up in the woods and he up in the trees and he was looking at them. And the things that they were going through, they would then connect to that story. And so they would get deeper insight about the meaning of their life and why they're here and what they're doing here. And it has nothing to do with whether that guy is actually in the trees looking at them. That's such a ridiculous proposition, though in our culture today, that tends to be how we understand what is factual. And, you know, I learned the the problem with facts I learned when I was in the supplement industry because I got really interested in what supplements could be shown to work and what supplements could be shown that were shown not to work and, and just the different ways in which we understand Uh, facts to me got really interesting because what I noticed is whoever was funding the study really would show a certain set of facts. And so then you realize that the facts, whatever they are, are actually quite movable based on someone's value system. So remember, when we think about our perception of the world, we elevate the importance of certain things and we discount the importance of other things and that tends to change the world as it presents to us. Now I totally understand that the scientific method is meant to get past that bias but when you get into the world of science you realize that they're not at all past that because the people that fund the studies have great interest in the results of the study and they tend to be in alignment. You know you can go on YouTube and you can look at apologetics debates. What apologetics is is the it's the 
genre of defending a certain faith tradition. So if you're familiar with somebody like Sam Harris, what he does is he'll debate people who have a certain perspective on faith and he'll try to show that they're incorrect and he'll he'll rely on this world of facts. And, you know, I get it. I, I totally understand why we think that's important, but oftentimes we're missing the forest because we're so focused on whether or not a certain tree is there, so to speak. I don't know if that analogy continues here, but you get what I'm saying. Like I, the, the idea of whether it's real because it happened, if that's the view you take on reality, you actually start to run into some problems. And this is why I'm opening with this as I get into the Buddha myth. You know, if you read the New Testament, all of the Gospels contradict each other in small ways. Like, they're not all saying the exact same thing. Now, somebody who believes that history is a matter of what happened has a difficulty in trying to explain why that happened. Now, they'll take the aspectual lens of, like, well, they had a different aspect on it. And so, you know, you can look at Luke, who was a lawyer. He's going to think differently than John, who was a bit of a mystic. And that's all true, but what I would purport is that they actually each tell something important about life in their own way, and we don't need to reconcile them in some factual way for them to do that. Now, I'm going to read the Buddha story. I'm gonna talk about finding ourselves in the Buddha myth, because it's, well, it's one of my favorite legends there is. Um, And I think it's a really good parable for our own journey into higher consciousness, our own seeking of, enlightenment, I would say, although I think that word is used way too much, but just our own desire to wake up, you know, the thing in us that longs for a truth that is more, more true than what the world can present. If in fact you have some sort of longing for connection and a depth, connection to self, connection to spirit, connection to all that is, then this story can tell us a lot about that journey. And at the end of the day, I think that's what the spiritual path is. You know, the spiritual path is asking who am I over and over and over and over again until you get to God. And what happens is that you get the intimation. Remember, as your consciousness rises, the level at which you know things changes. So as you are as you start to become more faithful to the deepest knowing that you have in your body, that knowing expands. And what you realize at some point is that what's true about you is ultimately true about everything. And that's why you see in a lot of spiritual paths, they start to talk about the idea of unity and being one. Now, I think that there's something tragic about talking about the world as if we're all one, if you don't actually see it that way. And the reason being is because you're still going to, your consciousness level can't be faked, right? The place that you're coming from can't be faked. And so what'll happen is you'll talk about the world in divisive ways, but you'll use the words like unity and people will discount your message almost assuredly. And that's why I think it's tragic because, you know, if you think about the, let's let's take before the world exists, right? Let's just talk about the primordial arc of being. We're talking about perfect wholeness. And then some sort of fissure happens, right? Science understands this as the Big Bang. Uh, religion, st- religious stories like in the Bible, for example, talk about 
God kind of carving time and space out of eternity. I, I think they're, they're saying the exact same thing, but one's using mythopoetic language and one's trying to understand what happened in a Newtonian way. But in any case, what you get is wholeness is then broken into the multitude, and that is the earth in which we inhabit. It is the segments of, of the whole. And so what happens is, and I believe that what's true is always true at every level of analysis. And when you look at patterns, one of the things you start to realize is what's been broken off and disintegrated is going to crave integration back into the wholeness. And I believe that the, the desire that sits at the core of our heart for wholeness is that same desire. It's the longing of the multitude and the many to become back to the uh, back to the point of unicity, which is probably better understood as a zero rather than a one, because God is not a thing, right? God is no thing. So that gets into what's called negative theology, and I'll do a, a podcast on that at some point. But in any case, this is the desire that we all have. And the Buddha story, in a lot of ways, is he is being faithful to that desire. It's, it's that knowing, because, you know, when you wake up when you really wake up to the real and to the absolute, it's always a remembering, right? And so what's happening is you're remembering what you've, what you've always known, what's baked into the very substructure of your being. And as I said, that knowing is what's true about you is true about everything. And as you follow that path, it's a, it's a journey, right? It's the hero's journey, fundamentally speaking. And so you're going to go through the different stages of that journey. And so what I'm going to do is talk, I'm going to read Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces. He talks about two different aspects of the Buddhist journey. The middle one, I'll just, I'll just tell from, from heart because I know it. But the reason I wanted to mention that it doesn't really matter whether or not the stories say the same thing in a factual sense is because when you talk about legend and you talk about myth, you're looking for the underlying truth right? This is chaos theory. I think in a lot of worlds, I think I might have said this before, but I think chaos theory and God are the same thing. It's the underlying pattern. No matter how deep you get into chaos, mathematicians keep finding that there is some sort of underlying pattern that sort of spontaneously emerges, no matter how much it looks like chaos. Well, when we're reading these stories, they, they're told from different people who have different viewpoints you know, different per perspectives and aspects. And they're going to tell the story slightly different, but there's beauty in that because each story tells us something more true about being here. It's like if you take the Gospel of Thomas, which was discovered in the Nag Hammadi Scrolls, and you read the way that Jesus interacted with his disciples in the Gospel of Thomas, it's a Gnostic text. So it's much different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but it tells you something incredible about what it means to be here. There's a line in the Gospel of Thomas where Jesus says, if you don't bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. And you could think about that as like you have a knowing in your heart and a knowing of who you should be and, and what you are ultimately interested in and what is what makes you feel expanded when you explore it. And if you don't go after that, if that if you allow that to sit in the center of you 
unattended to, then it will cause a resentment. It will call a, cause a rift, an internal division in your life. And you'll notice it. So if you are, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but if you are going after a life that fulfills and gratifies your outer identity and edges all along, knowing that there's something in your heart for you that's deeper, it will destroy you. And it's not a big leap in logic to see how that's true. All you have to do is not be true to yourself for a little while, and you'll start to see how true that is. And so this is what I mean by saying it does not matter whether or not that happened factually. That's just a thing that's true about humanity. It's a, it's a wise thing to know about ourselves, and it can save us from going down the wrong path for too long. There's some aspect of trial and error that we are called to in this life because we have to learn the lessons we have to know you know we have to actually experience it for the lesson to be really baked into us and for us to really know it on an experiential and deep level and for us to take the wisdom and insight from it and of course that's not at all reliant on any sort of factual history or, or anything like that it's just a lesson that we then match up to our experience and reality and we say Oh, yeah, you know, actually, I think that is how it is. I think that is how it is for me. I actually think I do have to be true to this, uh, this thing that's emerging within me. And as I said, as I get into the Buddha myth, that is specifically what sends him on his quest. He, he is, has to be true to having these insights, these pangs of truth, that reality isn't quite the way that it had been presented to him from his family system and from the structure he was born into. And in the myth, that's portrayed as the gods actually, you know, it's actually a, a divine grace that he sees that the world isn't the way that he exactly thought that it was. And what that's highlighting is the fact that it is a grace, those pangs of truth that we tend to ignore because we want to continue to gratify our identity and our senses and the things we think we need that are going to keep us safe. It's a grace when we see that those things aren't true anymore. It's a grace that we see that there is a deeper and better way of being, and it's going on that journey, which defines our life story. That's what we learn in the Buddha story. So I'll jump in here at the, the first part of this story where he's still in the ordinary world, and he hasn't yet woken up. He's still being called to his adventure. He's still being called to wake up to reality and to the destiny that is pulling him toward it. So Guatama, the person who is to become the Buddha, is born as a prince, so the young prince, the future Buddha, had been protected by his father from all knowledge of age, sickness, death, or monkhood, lest he should be moved to thoughts of life renunciation. For it had been prophesied at his birth that he was to become either a world emperor or a Buddha. The king, prejudiced in favor of the royal vocation, provided his son with three palaces and 40,000 dancing girls to keep his mind attached to the world. But these only served to advance the inevitable. For while still relatively young, the youth exhausted for himself the fields of fleshly joy and became ripe for the other experience. The moment he was ready, the proper herald automatically appeared. Now, something's interesting right, is being said right here, which is, something I believe deeply, which is, you know, you 
you can't be whatever you want to be. It's such an American thing to think that or a Western culture thing to think that you can be whatever it is that you want to be. And a lot of us are miserable because we are continuing to tell ourselves that rather your destiny is going to come through you. Your destiny is pulling you toward it. And things are trying to emerge in the world through you, as James Hollis says. And so, no, I don't think you can be whatever you want to be. But I would also point out that when you find the path and you become who you're supposed to be, it will be what you actually want to be. The problem is because we're such masters of self-deception, as I've said, so few of us know what it is that we actually want to be. And that's even more true in our early life. Another thing that's true is that when we find our path, when we're when we're on our path or when we get moments of introspection on our path where we can actually settle into knowing that we're on it, we kind of see that we were always on it. You know, everything was always preparing us for who for the destiny that's calling to us for who we're supposed to be. Now, on a certain day, the future Buddha wished to go to the park and told his charioteer to make ready the chariot. Accordingly, the man brought out a sumptuous and elegant chariot, and adorning it richly, he harnessed for it four state horses of the Siddhafa breed, as white as the petals of the white lotus, and announced to the future Buddha that everything was ready. And the future Buddha mounted the chariot, which was like to a palace of the gods, and proceeded toward the park. So if you can understand what's happening, if you pick up in the context, his, his dad wanted to control his destiny. Um... That happens sometimes. Carl Jung said that the greatest burden a child will have to bear is the unlived life of their parents. So his dad's trying to control everything. He's trying to not let him see the the darkness of the world. He's trying to keep him only emboldened in the sense world. The time for the enlightenment of the prince Siddhartha drew near, thought the gods. We must show him a sign. And they changed one of their number into a decrepit old man, broken-toothed, gray-haired, crooked and bent of body, leaning on a staff and trembling, and showed him to the future Buddha. But so that only he and the charioteer saw him. Then said the future Buddha to the charioteer, Friend, pray, who is this man? Even his hair is not like that of the other men. And when he heard the answer, he said, Shame on birth, since to every one that is born old age must come. And agitated in heart, he thereupon returned and ascended his palace. Why is my son returned so quickly? asked the king. Sire, he has seen an old man, was the reply. And because he has seen an old man, he is about to retire from the world. Do you want to kill me that you say such things? Quickly get ready some plays to be performed before my son. If we can but get him to enjoying pleasure, he will cease to think of retiring from the world. Then the king extended the guard to half a league in each direction. So this idea of retiring from the world that's popping up is something that in the East is kind of talked about. People sort of realize that they have a desire to know what's ultimately true about reality. And they see that the sense world, the world of flesh and material ultimately can't give them that. And so the path they take is to leave it completely and to wander in search of the truth. Again, on a certain day, the future Buddha was going to the park. He saw a diseased man whom the gods had fashioned, and having again made inquiry, he returned, agitated in heart, and ascended his palace. And the king made the same inquiry and gave the same order as before, and again extending the guard, placed them for three quarters of a league around. And again, on a certain day, as the future Buddha was going to the park, he saw a dead man whom the gods had fashioned. 
And having again made inquiry, he returned, agitated in heart, and ascended his palace. And the king made the same inquiry, and gave the same orders as before, and again, extending the guard, placed them for a league around. And again, on a certain day, as the future Buddha was going to the park, he saw a monk, carefully and decently clad, whom the gods had fashioned. And he asked his charioteer, Pray, who is this man? Sire, this is one who has retired from the world. And the charioteer thereupon proceeded to sound the praises of retirement from the world. The thought of retiring from the world was a pleasing one to the future Buddha. So what's happening here is that he's being, he's in a tug of war between destiny and, and egoic desire, right? When, when Christ talks about dying to be born again, you could imagine that at the center of who you are, there's truth, right? This is what we've been talking about. This is what you're seeking out. But on the edges of who you are, you've got all of these labels, all of the ways you define yourself, the expectations that the world has on you, the achievements, the, the things, the way that you show up in the world. And the process of dying is dying to the outer edges. You might say to the egoic desire of the world. That's what it means to die to the world. A lot of people who believe that they can be whatever they want to be still have to die to that outside edge. For a long time, I thought I was going to go into the world of finance, which is, you know, almost laughable when you think about the depth in life that I'm seeking and the way in which I talk in a mythopoetic way and understand reality. But there was some part of me that thought if I could go into finance and make enough money that that would some that would like secure my spot in existence. And one of the things that I believe is that once you really see who you are, the truth, truth at the core of who you are, you realize that you you don't need to earn your seat at the table, that you're here for a very important reason. And your destiny is that reason. Now, that doesn't mean your destiny is what you want it to be. Again, when you're still living entrenched in your identities and your outer edge of reality. And so what's being intimated here are the pangs of truth that we get along the way. You think about in your life where you're going, you know, you're going after the things you matter. This would happen to me in the military all the time. You know, I was I had this special operations career that I uh, quite honestly loved and it satisfied my need for adventure at a young age and all these other things that I was wanted that I wanted. But it also gave me an identity that I could feel safe in because in our country, people, you know, they support the troops and people are proud of you if you do something like that. And with the special operations uh, designator, it felt like there was another level of, of, I don't know, like people that supported me in some way or thought that it was cool or admired or something. In any case, I would get these sort of disorienting pangs of truth like this isn't necessarily your path forever. I would see people that could make it their path and I would almost feel jealous of that because something in me, deep in me, knew that there would be something else for me, that I would be called on another adventure and that eventually I wouldn't be able to refuse that call. I'd, I'd have to answer it. And so I think that that's often what we're doing is that we're learning how to be faithful to the deepest knowing that we have for who we are and what we're doing here. So what happens is that the Buddha retires from the world and he goes wandering in search of truth, in search of the, the meaning of all this, why we're all here, what we're doing here. The four noble truths come out of his searching in Buddhism. And he finds an ascetic path. 
Now, this is really interesting because an ascetic is somebody who renounces, let's say, gratification of the senses altogether. And so they eat very little. They don't have a home. They, they live in ragged conditions. And the idea is that by, again, depriving yourself of sensual gratification, you can find out, you can get deeper insight, a new kind of knowing will be bestowed upon you. And when you think about the way that fasting works or something, that's the idea of it, right? When you fast, you're no longer using the world to give you sustenance. And so you have to lean on something that might be bigger than the world, might be deeper than the world of sense, than what the material world has to offer. And that's why fasting can be such a spiritual experience. So the Buddha takes on this ascetic path and he is down to like one grain of rice per day and he's uh, he's about to die and he's right on death's doorstep. And in that moment, he, he realizes he's willing to die. It's not about not dying. He doesn't really care about that, but that he hadn't ultimately found what he was looking for. He hadn't found the answer to his path. Now, Buddhism is thought of as the middle way. And if you think about the Buddha's story, he oscillates or pendulates, you might say, between really being gratified of the senses. You think about having 40,000 young girls given to you as a prince and all of this stuff that, that was meant to keep him away from the darkness in life, the shadows of life, the, the spiritual aspect altogether that was meant to corral him on a certain path. And this is the thing, your parents can have all of the desires for you in the world, but if that ain't your path, that ain't your path. And so what happens is we get internal division because rather than going what, after what we want, often, not always true, it takes a while for us to wake up to this, but at, instead of going after what we want and being true to the knowing that we have in our heart, we continue to try to gratify the outside edges of our identity. And so we'll take the discomfort of not being on the right path onto ourselves and we'll grow resentful and we'll become the internal tyrant and all of these things. When in reality, what would I think make a little bit more sense is that we actually just follow our heart, our deepest sort of internal knowing, we be faithful to what we know when our heart is fully open. And then we let the world figure it out. You know, it's like we just allow ourselves to be misunderstood so that we can get on to doing whatever it is that we're here for, right? And I would say in a lot of ways, that's what I'm doing with this podcast now. So Buddha finds the middle way. It's between the sensual gratification, but then he goes all the way in the other direction and he realizes that that's not it either. Almost as if both are, are tools and ways to experience the world, but, but neither can give you the fullness of truth. And I think in our lives, we tend to oscillate back and forth between those two things. Like if I look at my 20s, what I see is a person who really convinced themselves that they could find the liberation that they actually wanted, right? The sense of wholeness, the sense of being alive in material itself. If I could just make enough money, if I could date the right person, if I could get the right achievement, then that would ultimately bring me the fulfillment that I was hoping for. And of course, it eventually, I realized it was only part of the equation. But if you look at our lives and you think that and believe that the desire in you is for wholeness. And this is what I would say marketers are, are constantly taking advantage of, right? You walk down the airport, 
really hit me last time I flew. Every single sign was basically telling me, you're not whole, but you could be. We have what's going to make you feel whole. And the only reason that that works is because you do have that internal desire, seeking of wholeness. You want to be reintegrated into the whole. The ego doesn't, right? Because that would mean the death of the ego, so to speak. But what the ego has to understand is, it can't make it. It's going to die. The ego can't be reintegrated into the whole. Thomas Merton one time was asked, hey, what do you think heaven's going to be like? And he said, well, I don't know. But one thing's for sure is there ain't going to be a whole lot of you there. And you know, what's interesting is we in the West want to believe like we get to take our opinions and our egos and all of this with us when we go. And that heaven's a place where there's all this space for all of our uh, opinions and, and beliefs and and you know, egoic aspects of our personality structure. And I would say that fundamentally the reason that heaven is described as spacious is because none of that will be there. And you'll see that you don't actually need any of that things. And so the spiritual path is in preparation for eternity. And so you're letting go of those outside edges as you move through the spiritual path because letting go is actually the only thing that prepares you for eternity, right? Because that's the only thing that, that's actually in concert with the transformation of your energy from the physical plane into something else. And so when we let go in the spiritual path, and that's the idea with this renunciation, is that we get closer to spirit. And I would say that some of our symptoms, again, if we're seeking wholeness, are actually us seeking that, that closeness to spirit. I heard Danielle talk a little bit about this in eating disorders, but she talks about this idea that an eating disorder is a reduction of matter. It's actually to, it is to move, to feel lighter in your body, to feel closer to spirit. And so we have all of these ways that tend to come out as neuroses if we don't understand why we're seeking what we're seeking. And so adding context to our symptoms and to the things we're doing can help us at least express those des desires in ways that are actually serving us, that are actually helpful in moving us closer to a meaningful existence. And as the Buddha points out, it's the middle way which gives us the most life. And that desire to escape is baked in all of the world's religions. You know, one of the incredible things about the Jesus story is that it's the incarnation, right? And so in that story, it's not about escaping. It's actually about God coming down into reality and suffering alongside and with. And that's what compassion is, right? And that gives us a map of how to be in this world, how to be compassionate, that there's a, there's a higher way of being. Well, what happened in the second century is that Gnostics came along and what Gnostics said is that the world was created by a demiurge, like a lesser God, that's Yahweh in the Old Testament. And you know, that's an interesting thought because when you read the Old Testament, it's pretty hard to reconcile the fact that that's love. And I think part of that is because we're not reading it right. We're not reading it symbolically. We're still reading it through this literal thing. And so in this literal sense, the camel actually had to talk in real life. And God actually had to smite people dead for um, blowing their load on the ground. Like all of this crazy stuff that you see that's like not trying to tell you an accurate picture of reality in my 
uh, perspective, but is rather trying to tell you something deeper, something more true about preserving life force and honoring the gift of life and honoring the people that you're with. And so the genius of Jesus coming is that he then is an embodiment of the underlying ethic that's trying to be put forth in the Old Testament. Well, Gnostics took it a different way and they said, well, actually the world was created by an evil God and matter itself is evil, but our life force, it's called the divine spark within us, is actually a remnant of God most high. And what Gnosis means is knowledge. And so what they were seeking was that if you had the right knowledge, you could understand what's true about you and you could escape the evil world of matter. And you see this so often in our world today, though it takes a different form. So what happens is that Christianity essentially drives Gnosticism out and, and wins in the way that they, are, they refute the Gnostics and they canonize the, the Bible, the New Testament, and all of that. But what's interesting is that actually I think the Gnostics won in a way that most Christians don't understand because if you look at most Christian sects in the world today, they have these flares of Gnosticism inherently running through them and they just don't know it because we don't talk about some of the deeper stuff of our own path. There's a song growing up that we used to, that we used to sing in church and it would say, I'll fly away. Right. It, the idea being the sentiment being that all of this is evil and that we have to escape this world. And if we say the right combination of words, this Jesus person is going to allow us to escape this world of evil matter. That's actually pretty opposite to the idea of the incarnation in the first place. Right. That if you take the myth for what it is, then it's actually saying that the opposite is true. The divine comes and dwells down here and shows you a path for it. And that's a lot different than the sentiment that we have at the bottom of Western culture, which is your vehicle is just a machine. You can make it do whatever you want it to do. And there's some nobility in being able to do that. And what I would say is that's actually a tool, right? There is a, a certain level of truth in that. I found that out. I found that to be true in ultra marathons. It's like the body can be so far so trashed, so beyond capability and still continue going because it's this miraculous vehicle that we have to experience the world. But thinking that you are other than your body, right? Because you're both, your spirit and matter. The, the beauty of the human experience is that you are that point of crucifixion. You are that point where the divine can dwell and enter into the physical universe. And what you find oftentimes is that the body has an immense intelligence, right? Because our intellect, our cognitive faculties, those developed so much later than the body. So the intelligence that's baked into the body because of the evolutionary process is deep. And also what this means is that you can't necessarily go against your body. I mean, you can, but you pay for a price. You pay a price. It's internal division. You, you're further from wholeness when you try to go against the body. When you start to learn to listen to your body, then you start to realize the immense wisdom that the body actually knows. The breath actually knows. The heart rate actually knows. You can't you can't get by those things. You know, you can ignore what the body needs and you'll watch your breath become shallow. You'll watch your heart rate, heart rate spike. You can tell yourself you're at peace, but it's actually the uh, embodiment that gives us a sense of peace. You're not trapped.
despite what different religions insinuate. If you're looking for a spiritual path, turn toward your life. Be in your life. Most people think that the spiritual path is actually about escaping, and then drugs become really um, salient to us. They make us feel as though we found the path a little bit, and I've definitely fallen prey to this myself. But actually, if you turn toward your life, and then everything sort of becomes a, an aspect of your spiritual experience, you find that you get this, you then get this participatory knowing. It's no longer an intellectual abstract idea. You actually are given the meaning of your life. You actually see it while you're in it. And then washing the dishes, as Ram Dass says, becomes like a consecration to God. And um, every, everything you do, it becomes an aspect of your spiritual path. And I would say that when you look at something like the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, what he's actually, what he's presenting there is that you can live your life, not escape your life, live your life in a way that hones your perceptual lens so that you can see truth. And that's what I think, that's one of the things that Buddhism gives the world is that the, the thing that's different about their aspectual lens is that they essentially have a path that you can follow, which can home your ability to see what's true. And it, re and it actually requires being in your life. But as I said, all religions have their own escapism. There's plenty of Buddhists for sure, whose only you know real desire is is nirvana, is trying to escape the cycles of samsara. And even though that's the ultimate, the ultimate end state of Buddhism to escape these cycles of death and rebirth, the way that you do it is actually by being in them fully, by being fully alive, by being fully human. And so no matter who it is that you follow, it's just important that you hopefully can follow them into a deeper way of being. If, they're, if you're following a path and they're asking you to escape your life, you know, I don't know. I just think that you wouldn't be in your life if the whole point was to escape it. At the bottom of that idea then is the idea that actually your life's a mistake. You're not supposed to be here. You just got to get the hell out of here. Um, that's too simple. That's not how life works. You know, God comes to you disguised as your life. So what happens is the Buddha essentially in that moment, someone comes along and brings him uh, nourishment. A girl brings him, you know, rice and milk. And there's some symbolism in that because there's the nurturing aspect of the feminine, which brings him back to life. And so then he goes back in search of uh, in search of truth. He realized he didn't find it. And that, that pissed a lot of people off in his ascetic community. As you can imagine, whenever you realize, hey, I thought this was it, but it's not. In those moments, uh, people, they get angry because you're no longer holding their projections. They don't realize that part of their identity was wrapped up in you doing what you do. And when people reject us pivoting in our path, oftentimes it's because of that. So they don't realize to the way in which they've enmeshed themselves. They haven't woken up to who they are. So they rely on you to wake those aspects of themselves up and they get really butthurt when you don't continue to uphold their projections and go down the same path. So where we jump into this story, he has, uh, he's left the ascetic community and now he's still in search of truth and he comes upon the Bodhi tree. So one day he sat beneath the tree contemplating the eastern quarter of the world, and the tree was illuminated with his radiance. 
A young girl named Sujata came and presented milk and rice to him in a golden bowl, and when he tossed the empty bowl into a river, it floated upstream. This was the signal that the moment of his triumph was at hand. He arose and proceeded along a road which the gods had decked, and which was 1,128 cubits wide. The snakes and birds and the divinities of the woods and fields did him homage with flowers and celestial perfumes. Heavenly choirs poured forth music. The ten thousand worlds were filled with perfumes, garlands, harmonies, and shouts of acclaim. For he was on his way to the great tree of enlightenment, the Bodhi tree, under which he was to redeem the universe. He placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree on the immovable spot, and straightway was approached by Kamamara, the god of love and death. So I want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing here when the tree is illuminated with his radiance. You know, as we move closer to our destiny, we start to get what Joseph Campbell calls the helping hands. I talked about how in Joseph Campbell's Bliss, how he finds out that there's a stage in our journey where we have to let go of our old ways of being. We have to let go of what keeps us safe in order to get to our destiny, in order to become who we're here to ultimately become. And so what's being shown in the symbolism of his nourishment and of the illumination of what's around him is that as you start to throw off the chains of your past, the universe will begin to conspire to help you out. That doesn't mean it won't be easy. You still have to face the trials in the underworld. But what's happening is that the path is being made clear for you. It is your letting go. You're getting closer to your destiny, which clears that path. We have to let go of the edges that keep us safe. And as the humble warrior code said, to bow to the heart. And so now he has this encounter with Kamamara, the god of death and love. So the dangerous god appeared mounted on the elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before him, 12 to the right, 12 to the left, and in the rear as far as to the confines of the world. It was nine leagues high. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And the god then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder, and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness. The antagonist hurled against the savior, but the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Guatemala's ten perfections. Right now, something interesting is happening. Carl Jung said that if you're always facing the light, you'll never see your shadow. And I think what happens in our religions of today, oftentimes, because we're not looking for that middle path, we're not looking for that incarnated path. Rather, we're looking at the light, we're looking at God or our image of God, and we're identifying ourselves with it. And oftentimes that casts a really, really large shadow because Again, we're seeking wholeness. You're not just one thing. You're not just light. You are darkness. There are dark aspects about you. And if we deny those dark aspects, they get pushed into our shadow, right? We stare at the light and we don't see the shadow that the light is creating. And the brighter the light gets, the bigger the shadow gets. And when you look at clergy, for example, who engage in unlawful sexual practice or something along those lines. What's happening is that they're so identified with the light that they're not able to reconcile and come to terms with their shadow. They can't admit that the devil exists inside of them, 
right? When you look, when you read myth, you read it as if the entire thing is taking place inside of you. And so when you read the story of Adam and Eve, for example, you realize that part of you is Eve, part of you is Adam, part of you is the serpent, and part of you is God. If you read it that way, when you go to engage in something that you feel as though you shouldn't engage in, right? When you go to eat from the apple in your own life, flip open Pornhub or whatever it is, right? Make that first drink for the day. Well, at first, when you're trying not to do those things, the conversation that takes place between the serpent and Eve is exactly the way that you'll justify it to yourself. It's like, well, is it really that bad? Do you really say that, right? And so this is the value is if we think that these things happened again at some point in history, we're not in my eyes, getting all of the, the spiritual juice out of it, all of the fruit out of it. Rather, we have to recognize that these things are happening in us. So right here, the Buddha is being assailed, you know, thunder and flame, smoking weapons. Like he essentially what's happening is Kamamara is trying to scare him out of his concentration, out of his spot on earth, out of his destiny. And in the Bible, there are over 365 different references to not being afraid, to not giving in to fear, which is the ironic part of fear being leveraged as a way to get people to uh, believe in the doctrines, right? That's actually, uh, from a technical perspective, a uh, behavior that the Antichrist would display. But we tend to discount all of that in ourselves. We tend not to see that in ourselves. And so anyway, the Bible over 365 different times tells you not to be afraid. And the reason being is because if you are afraid, it's a form of possession, right? It takes control of who you are. I think I've said this on here before, but imagine a physical fear. If I pull a gun out and you're afraid of me, I can make you do whatever it is that I want. And so if you give in to all of these existential fears, the likelihood that you'll get scared away from your path, away from your destiny is actually really likely. But you know what your demons aren't expecting of you, aren't expecting from you? Love. The one thing that your demons do not want to be is loved. And you might say that that's impossible, that you can't love something which causes you so much pain or which gives you so much heartache, to which I would say, as Jordan Peterson has said before, there are some games you lose just because you play them, right? And I would say with your demons, thinking that you can fight them and vanquish them, as soon as you engage in the fight, you've lost because that's exactly what they want you to do. You know, in the West, we have this idea that we can vanquish what we don't like. We can get rid of it. This is why we're so prone to fighting. Like in the US, we've been in wars, but you know, essentially every other decade forever. And many of those were just multiple decades, like the war that, that we've been in for the last 20. And part of that stems from the fact that we believe we can vanquish the other. And, and we think we can vanquish the other because we think we can vanquish the other in ourselves. What we're doing when we do that is creating the shadow. We're staring at the light. We're trying to get rid of the other and it's gonna grow behind us. And so people that think that they have their demons on lock, that they vanquish them in some way, are actually just on borrowed time. They're waiting for those demons to pull them back in. Um, and when I use demons, again, like I've said on here before, whatever it is, that takes from you. You know, you engage in it, you don't want to engage in it, and when you engage in it, it takes from your life force. It makes you feel worse about yourself. It's not serving you, right? These are what I'm using, when I'm talking about, when I talk about demons. And one thing that's interesting that I realized in my own life is that if it weren't for darkness, I would have never found the light. If it weren't for me having such deep, 
dark times in the military and just at different parts of my life, there's nothing that would have sent me on my own sacred search for light and for consciousness. And so to say that the demons don't play some role in the ultimate emergence of the highest good would be incorrect, you know? And again, that's not that we condone that behavior or whatever, but it's just realizing that everything, if we're actually seeking wholeness, then that's both darkness and light. Everything has a part to play. And that part becomes solidified once you love it, once you're grateful for your demons, that internal devil, once you realize that actually, if it weren't for that, imagine if you didn't feel bad about the behavior that you continue to engage in that you yourself don't like. Now, if you didn't feel bad about it, that would be a much worse problem because perhaps you would just continue down a path that wasn't serving you and get deeper and deeper. And so in that sense, there's this this feeling of internal guilt that can actually be a gift because it's showing you something like this isn't your path. It's not for you. And as I said, the one thing that your demons are not counting on you to do is to love them. And that's what's being shown in the Buddha story here, that all of this fear is brought is being brought to him. And he's just choosing love over and over and over again. And it's transforming them into what they really are. I had an experience one time on ayahuasca. And I remember I was I would see these things that I was afraid of. They were the things I was the most afraid of in the world. So I wasn't I was trying not to look at them. But one thing about ayahuasca is you can't um, doesn't work that way. Like you you're in it. So you try to look away, but then you just see it over there. And what's interesting is I remember that the ayahuasca was trying to get me to look at these things that I feared the most in the world. And finally, you know, I realized like I'm in hell avoiding these things. And then I realized I was in hell avoiding them in my regular life. And so then I looked at them, I stared at them. And then as I did, I saw them transfigure before my eyes into what they really were. And I realized in that moment, the power that surrender and understanding and love can have on these things that we tend to try to avoid our whole lives, you know, that's the sentiment behind the idea that the, that which you fear the most will be found where you're least willing to look. It's like, yeah, your destiny is behind the thing you're the most afraid of. And so if you can bring love to that fight, to that battle, you're no longer playing the game that the demons expect you to play, that your own sort of internal demons expect you to play. So let's move on. So the fear doesn't work. So Kamamara then deployed his daughters, desire, pining, and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. So essentially he's like, okay, maybe I can get this guy to break his concentration. He's, he's getting close to his destiny. Maybe I can get him to get pulled off the path by lust. I mean, it works for us, right? And you know what's interesting about that, too? You know, what happens is, let me say two things about this. One, Kamamara is the god of love and death. And so you might say that there's a malevolent aspect that he's trying to get the Buddha to uh, leave his destiny because he actually wants him to fail. What's being posited here, though, is actually these are the trials in which he must go through so that he can reach the stage that he's looking for, so that he can reach the boon, the elixir that he can then share with the world. And so, again, looking at it this way, 
the lust you have that you wish you could get rid of, all of these things, maybe the, maybe you don't need to vanquish them. Maybe they're actually all trying to prepare you for your destiny and you have to go through them so that you can be the kind of person that you're ultimately here to be. We don't know what we need, so we have to go through what the world presents with us. We have to surrender to these things in some way because there's always the chance that you actually need what you go through. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting on the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of the antagonist fell upon its knees in obedience to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed and the gods of all the worlds scattered garlands. Now, I said something earlier about when you really realize like, who you are, what you are, when you realize what you bring to the table, the last thing you're going to need is permission to sit at it. And so what the Buddha's doing here is that he's claiming his right to be here. That's something in Western culture we don't do, right? When you think about we're such a sorry culture, you know, we're always saying sorry. We're always, you know, we take the problem on ourselves and we try to get out of the way of other people. We're afraid to take up space in some way. And our culture of people pleasing really gives in to that, like really makes us feel as though we don't have a right to be here, that we do exist only to please others. And what the Buddha is challenging there is his right to actually be here. I've said it before, but life product form as you for a reason. To think that you don't deserve to be here when you're here is illogical in itself. But that's a truth that we all have to come to in our own time. We have to realize that our right to be here is built within the very fabric of our existence in the first place. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And that's why when we set out on these paths to earn our spot, to earn our validation, to earn our belonging, there's never enough. There's always more that we have to do. And whenever we get off that path, we always feel empty. You know, you, you, I remember talking to a girl who won an Olympic gold medal in rowing on my first podcast. And she talked about how when she retired, she just had this incredible emptiness. And part of it was because her identity had been wrapped up in what she was doing. But, you know, part of it is that you actually have to come to terms with the fact that everything you've done isn't the thing that makes you so incredible, the thing that makes you incredible is the fact that what's true about you is true about everything. And so you do have a right to take up space. And I also think that the spiritual path gives us this too. It gives us access to something beyond the material world. And that's one of the other travesties with trying to drag these stories into the material world of facts and did it happen? It's like, well, what a spiritual life gives you access to is to know that there is something in you that is also beyond matter. So when the fears come up and all of these things that would hope to take you off your path and dissuade you from your spot in life, you actually have access to a truth that is deeper to, than anything the world can present. There are, there are many theories of consciousness. And so the material view of the world tends to say that consciousness comes from an interaction of neurons, from an interaction of our brain matter. And that's what, that's what creates 
the idea of consciousness. And so people are looking for ways in which you could take your consciousness and put it into something like a computer system or into something like AI, like our impulse for eternal life in the scientific worldview is being taken as, well, if we can just harness our conscious, which is all a product of matter, then our consciousness, which is all a product of matter, then we, um, then we can secure eternal lives for ourselves. But I actually tend to think that the unified theory of consciousness is a little bit better in that consciousness is like a river, right? And so we all are manifestations of that river, but then when we die, we, the part goes back into the whole. So there's nothing, there's not this personality structure that can be captured in my worldview. It's a, it's a bit of an illusion. It's like, imagine that consciousness is a radio wave and our brains and our bodies and our minds are antennas that pick up that consciousness, that have a certain role to play here in the evolution of that consciousness. But then when we die, it's something like you just break the radio receiver. The consciousness doesn't cease to be, the radio receiver ceases to pick it up. And the reason I'm putting that out there, I, I mean, there are a million different theories of consciousness, but the reason I'm putting that out there is if you, if that's the one you buy, well, I don't know, the world stops to have so much control over you. You know, you realize that there's a bottom to all of this. One time when I was young, I crashed my dad's car and I was freaking out, crashed it into a snowbank and I was freaking out because he was coming to pick me up and I was like, man, he's going to, he's going to be pissed, he's gonna beat my ass. And I remember talking to the, uh, I was 15. I remember talking to the neighbor who gave me a pull out of the out of the bank. And he said, you know, man, they can only hang you until your toes don't touch. And in that moment, it, it hit me that like, oh, right. There is only so much that can happen to me. When you give in to fear, it's endless, right? There's always more fear. There's always more fear. There's always something new to avoid. But when you realize that like, well, actually there's, there's kind of a bottom to all of this and you don't actually get the final say in reality, you just get the final say in this one particular situation. And I remember I had a similar experience. You know, I had this awakening experience when I was about eight months from getting out of the military. And it was very fascinating because I was feeling very victimized and trapped by uh, certain situations that I was in. But once I had this awakening to this realization that I was some, somehow far more than this individual I who felt victimized by decisions that he had made, I realized I was free, but I was free on principle, not license. Nobody could give me my freedom or take my freedom in some very real and substantial way that wasn't obvious to me when I had only a material perspective. And again, that is the beauty of the spiritual life. You realize, oh, I am free on principle, not on license. And so nobody gets the final say in who I really am. Having won the preliminary victory before sunset, the conqueror acquired in the first watch of the night knowledge of his previous existences. In the second watch, the divine eye of omniscient vision. And in the last watch, understanding of the chain of causation. He experienced perfect enlightenment at the break of day. Now, what's being communicated here is that in your path, you are given deeper ways of knowing by just going on the journey. You know, by actually 
going the work, doing the work, converting your inner demons to love, actually loving yourself through it, actually claiming your spot in reality. Remember the participatory knowing. We get deeper insight into what it means to be here. The knowing actually changes. It goes from this finite I way of knowing and viewing and seeing the world to something more expansive once you realize that what's true about you is true about everything. Then for seven days, Gautama, now the Buddha, the enlightened, sat motionless in bliss. For seven days, he stood apart and regarded the spot on which he had received enlightenment. For seven days, he paced between the place of the sitting and the place of the standing. For seven days, he abode in a pavilion furnished by the gods and reviewed the whole doctrine of causality and release. For seven days, he sat beneath the tree where the girl Sujata had brought him milk, rice, and a golden bowl and there meditated on the doctrine of the sweetness of nirvana. He removed to another tree, and a great storm raged for seven days. But the king of serpents emerged from the roots and protected the Buddha with his expanded hood. Finally, the Buddha sat for seven days beneath a fourth tree, enjoying still the sweetness of liberation. Then he doubted whether his message could be communicated, and he thought to retain the wisdom for himself. But the god Brahma descended from the zenith to implore that he should become the teacher of gods and men. The Buddha was thus persuaded to proclaim the path, and he went back into the cities of men where he moved among the citizens of the world, bestowing the inestimable boon of the knowledge of the way. Man, there are so many fascinating parallels between this story and the Christian story. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that Christianity was often called the way before it became Christianity and then, you know, be- took over the Roman Empire, it was actually just called the way. And so that's also what it was called in the Buddha myth. And so what's being alluded to here is the same thing that I allude to in uh, Ambitious Heroes and Heartache, which is the fact that you and the collective and the world have a reciprocal responsibility to each other. You go on your journey and you suffer, and then you get an elixir. You get a deeper insight, a deeper knowing, a deeper way of being in the world. And then you share that medicine. The, co- the collective which raised you and kept you safe also benefits by you leaving the collective, that's what's meant by retiring from the world in the Buddha myth, and going on your hero's journey, and then in that moment, realizing that you take that deeper insight and that you now have something to give back to the world that is infinitely, quite literally, infinitely valuable. And what's interesting about that story and about all of this is that, you know, it adds a little bit of context to your struggles. It, you know, it gives you a little bit of permission to seek the thing that you know beyond knowing, that you can't articulate, but that deep in the center of who you are, you know to be true. And as you, as you go on your path, you remember more about who you are and what you're doing here, which is the point of uh, great, the world's great religions, right? It's to give you a path of remembering, to remind you of who you really are. And then you get into language like child of God and things along those lines. But the Buddha's myth, the Buddha's path can tell us a lot about our own journey, uh, especially if seeking light, seeking higher consciousness is something that we are interested in in our lives. And I want to end with this. You know how I was saying this idea of us feeling in the West like we can vanquish the enemy, like we can, we if we just get in the right fight, then that will be the one that ends all fights. Of course, they thought that about World War II, and we've been in many wars since then, because it's one of those games that if you continue to play, you continue to 
lose in some real and substantial way. Well, you know what's interesting is I was once given the question, who do I think would win in a fight between Jesus and Buddha? Now, it's laughable, right? I get it. But let me just refresh your mind of something. Because Jesus, when he was asked what the most important commandment was, he said to love God and love people, i.e. love your neighbor as yourself and see yourself as somebody worthy of loving. So what you realize is that the phrasing of the question in and of itself tells me where the mindset is of the motivation behind the question, right? Because again, we do feel in some way that the world is a zero-sum game. And so for me to win, you have to lose. I want to remind you that Jesus's entire ministry and life, he continued to say, love your enemy, and he continued to be an embodiment of that love. People that the world had cast it out as outcasts, those were the people that he was spending his time with, right? He was spending his time with the downtrodden and the outcasts and those that society would deem not worth uh, saving or worth caring for or treating as if they were human. And he was so committed to it in the story that he was willing to die a very vulnerable death, right? If you think about the symbolism of the cross right here, you're laid bare in front of the world. So it's kind of like the thing that you you don't want to happen the most, right, is to be completely vulnerable in front of everybody and, and to be shamed. He would rather that in the story than actually go against his own teachings to fight. Like he accepted that as if he could accept the consequence of living in a higher way. Right. And so that happens with Jesus in the Roman Empire. And you just heard the story of the Buddha and everything that tried to stop him from his enlightenment, tried to get him to engage, to leave his spot, to fight, to not claim his spot in reality. And he met all of them with the kind of love that transforms them. So the question isn't who would win in a fight. That's the wrong phrasing. Because the reality is that the strongest empire that the world had ever known couldn't get them to fight. And what you heard in the Buddha story is that all of the gods in all of the worlds couldn't get them to fight. Yet we're down here thinking we're going to solve our problems like that, right? It's a, it's a new way of being in the world that is being opened up by these great teachers. It's a new paradigm of thought, new ways of thinking and being entirely. And as I've been making a case for throughout this entire show, the participatory knowing that is being taught on these spiritual paths actually requires you to know. It actually requires you to do the work to... Uh, leave the sidelines and like the phoenix take the fire on yourself to be reborn to be reborn is not the intellectual property of any one religion or dogma to be reborn is your right by virtue of who and what you really are